All right, the glory of the new covenant. I have for you on page one a outline that happens to fit to the line on one page. So, nailed it. And what you have there is the reminder of, if you look at the two big Roman numerals, you'll see what I told you last time. Remember the last time the outline I gave you was part one, people Paul is pleased with, part two, most seriously displeased with. Right? These are the, the two chunks. So the first part, the first nine chapters, this is to the majority of the church that has heeded his call to exercise discipline and to shun the super apostles. And there is a laying out there for you kind of the things. So my hope is it will help you to be able to see where we're going a little bit more easily and you'll have big chunks of text that you begin to see underneath those headings so that you'll have the book mapped out in your mind a little bit better. And then with part two, um, remember that's against the minority that refused to participate in the disciplining and also sides with these guys that are claiming to be apostles uh, and claiming to be superior to Paul and denying Paul's apostleship. Okay, so last time we made it through chapter 2, but the end of chapter 2 connects with the stuff that we're going through. So I wanted to read for you a few, this, the last three or the last four verses and remind you of a couple of things there from what we looked at last time. 2.14 Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Okay, so God leads us in triumph in Christ everywhere. So we're going all over the place, conquering things all the time, winning. That's all we're doing. We're just running around winning. So, that being the case, that results in, how does this victory occur? It's through the spreading of this fragrance of Christ. It's the manifestation of the glory of Christ. As we go around speaking the words of Christ, doing what Christ commands, we are manifesting the presence of Christ throughout the earth. And that is sort of a, a way in which there's this dusting. It's a leavening process. It's the way in which the knowledge of God starts to be spread throughout the world. Verse 15, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved. Right, So we are, we are the fragrance of Christ. We are this smell of Christ, the manifestation of Christ among those who are being saved. We are the ones who are used and caused to bring them to faith or to grow their faith. And among those who are perishing, we are also the fragrance of Christ. And what does that do? It helps to create the contrast because they react. So there is this antithesis reaction. The building up of the church and the rearing back and swiping of the world against the church. There is this response, this screech that is the response of the world. Verse 16, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. That's the world. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. That is the church. And who is sufficient for these things? Right? So, who, this idea, you go, how is it that I can go around winning all the time? Who is sufficient for this reality that we are conquerors, that we are more than conquerors in Christ? That we go around triumphing over and over again. That we go from mission to mission victorious. Because every time, God accomplishes what He intends. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as the rest, adulterating for gain the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So there's this spreading of the Word of God, not polluting it, because if you pollute it, you're no longer sending out the fragrance of Christ, you're sending out Antichrist. But if you preach the Word, even if you get a reaction that's a screech, you are victorious. You are accomplishing the purpose. The fragrance of Christ is being dissipated. And you do not know what is screeched at today may result in a bending of the knee tomorrow. The Word of God in the hearts of people, does not always bring the effect at the time it is heard. Oftentimes, the effect is brought about many years later. There are many stories of saints who in a moment of trial 
came to mind in their heads. They had this thought of things they were taught as children or they'd heard from a preacher or whatever. So you can find many a story of a person who is saved by teaching, preaching, or the reading of the Word of God or catechizing, but at a much later date. Chapter 3, verse 1. Verses 1 through 11, the proof of the Apostle's fitness for his work and the nature of his work. Um, that is, I stole these, these header names principally from Charles Hodge's commentary in 2 Corinthians. Modified a few of them a little bit, but it's pretty much just that. And that's where the outline is sort of a modified, shortened, managed to make it fit on one page with the exact space I had version of Charles Hodge's outline. So that's, that's what you've got. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Okay, so this is, this is a much forgotten practice. The idea of letters of transfer and commendation. Letters of standing. This is a practice that makes Presbyterianism, or at least a connectionalism between churches, very necessary. Because what letters will you accept? There's, you have to have some way of saying, whose letters will we accept? What letters of transfer do we accept? What letters about a person's ordination or standing as an officer do we accept? And some people say, well, what is this? It's just something we're just making up. This is something Presbyterians and Episcopalians want to make up. No. It's something the Apostle Paul made up. Oh, wait, he received it from Jesus. So let's not call it making up because we're calling a thing of God, an ordinance of God, something that's man-made. These letters of commendation here that Paul is talking about, he's saying, look, I came with letters commending me. He was sent off as an apostle. Other churches commended him. He had a commissioning to go do this. And a part of his commission is the book of Acts, by the way. The book of Acts is his letter of commissioning. It captures the commissioning he received from Jesus. But the churches also commission him at various times. He receives papers to go to the council at Jerusalem, for example. But here, he's saying, look, Corinth, I planted you as a church. Do you now need me to get another letter to show you that I'm a lawful officer? And so, that's what he's doing. This is supposed to be a statement of ridiculousness. But we need to recognize that letters of commendation are a part of the Old Covenant administration and they're a part of the New Covenant administration. And the way that people can transfer when you have a shared covenant uniformity between churches is simply a letter. Now, today we have an example of a member of Apologia transferring here. And we say that they are like faith in many, many ways. Right? We have the same gospel. We have uh, the shared understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation. And, and we engage with them about things about, we have a shared eschatology and a view of the law. Right? So there's lots and lots of unity there. But at the same time, we have a differing view on baptism, differing view on, on worship, differing views on church government, differing views on what's necessary to be admitted to the table. Right? So these are important things. They don't mean it's a different religion, but you would want to work through those kinds of things to simply have a transfer letter that could make everything work. So what do we do here? Well, we have a letter of standing that we've received, and then we're also going to have a process of covenanting, where an individual is going to covenant to enter into our church covenant, which acknowledges some of the distinctive differences like the baptism of children. And so those differences require us to not only have a letter of standing, but to have a covenanting act, but if you had two churches that had the same covenanted uniformity, all you'd need to do is to have the person have a letter that communicates their standing. And we would be needing to hear the testimony of our brothers that are in covenanted uniformity with us. And this was the goal of the Westminster Assembly, by the way, was to establish a covenanted uniformity, not just in Scotland, not just in Ireland, not just Wales or in England, but to have it across the British Isles. A covenant of uniformity across that whole land. That was the idea. Shared doctrine, worship, and government. That is the goal, that is the ideal that reformed people have always had in mind. And that is not talked about now. And that is why the church is so weak. Because we have no unity. And we have no uniformity to encourage unity. Everybody thinks unity is good, uniformity is bad. 
Uniformity is the forms being shared so that you can train people by the same pattern so that you can get to unity. You disciple people in a catechetical uniformity so that you have unity of doctrine. So, having a shared form would be things like what are the letters commending? What is the covenant that a person has sworn to uphold in these letters? How are they being commended? Now, all that information is captured in baptism itself. Right, so what the covenant is is maintained there in baptism. But that's the idea of epistles of commendation. Epistles are letters letters that are sent it's sent over or messages sent over. And so this idea of an epistle or a letter of commendation. Verse 2, You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Now, the claim here is the need for a form for an epistle here is silly because these people were converted under the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so it's obvious that they are people who are sharing the same faith. He helped to order their government. He helped to order their local church. So to not receive him is silly because a letter is supposed to be testimony of something but they've witnessed his exercise of authority. They've witnessed his work. They've witnessed his teaching. They've witnessed his behavior. They've witnessed the loving, self-sacrificial ministry that he does. And so, in all of those things, they have the evidence, which would be the basis of a testimony, that this guy should be received in good standing and is a legitimate officer. So, to have seen it all, received it all, and then to not acknowledge his authority... This is the absurdity. Okay, what do I need, guys? Do I need to get to you new credential papers? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. Right there? These people, the, the church at Corinth, is an epistle. They're profession of faith, their behavior, what they teach is itself a letter that communicates to the world. They are spreading the fragrance of Christ throughout the world by their teaching and behavior as they seek to apply the law. Those things are all a testimony to the truth. And the behavior of Corinth is an epistle, a recommendation letter for the Apostle Paul when it's right. So to the extent that they can view themselves as a valid church, they should be viewing him as a valid apostle. Additionally, when he talks about them, you are our epistle written in our hearts. What does that mean? Is the church is he saying, because we have such sincere feelings for you, therefore you are an epistle for us? Well, they can't tell his feelings. Sociopaths can become quite good at pretending to feel things. You've met me. Bom, bom, bom. All right. So... That being the case, since there's a danger of sociopaths pretending to care, we can't read people's feelings. So what do we do? We look at this and we say, Paul is not saying you have feelings in me that you can look to. It's rather what we taught you and how we ministered to you is evidence of what's actually in our hearts, what's our motive. We taught you what we believed and our behavior is harder to fake than a certification letter. You, you have greater evidence of what we actually believe by our prolonged behavior in your presence and our prolonged teaching in your presence than you do from a letter. And you accept these super apostles because somebody wrote them a letter? Verse 3. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Right, so there are letters which are a part of the administration of the law written in ink, and they are useful in the church. But you know what's even more powerful than that is organizing a church that has evidence of the Spirit in it, that has right doctrine, right worship, and right government with people who are hospitable and bearing fruits of the Spirit. That is a more powerful letter 
a recommendation for an officer. And so, if somebody attacks the use of a ministry or the validity of a ministry, the confession of a church, its worship and its government, are more important than the credential paperwork. That is what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. And so there's the reality versus the sign. Is the ministry valid? And there is the work of the Spirit, which is the reality. And there is the externals, which are signs. Does that mean the signs are unimportant? No. Signs are intensely, extremely important. That's all we have, people. Except when the Holy Spirit chooses to use the signs and bring the Spirit. All we have are signs. That's all we can use. And so we use the signs and we pray for the Holy Spirit to use them, to powerfully move by them, to make them effectual, to have the writing with ink turn into writing on the heart, to have the pounding of the ears turn into a receiving of truth in the mind. And we have the expectation that this will be powerfully done in the New Covenant. But we do not effectually, of ourselves, make it happen. We do not ex opere operato, by the use of the ceremonies, bring about the desired result. The preaching does not bring conversion. Baptism does not bring conversion. The Lord's Supper does not bring conversion. These things do not bring conversion except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are not to seek to use the Lord's Supper as a converting ordinance, but rather as a renewal ordinance. Now, Verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So, ink is a sign, preaching is a sign, profession is a sign, Spirit's the reality, it's the inward reality, and belief is a part of that, it's the inward reality that's given, it's how we possess God. Tablets of stone, that should remind you of Moses, right? It should remind you of the Ark of the Covenant. It should remind you of the Ten Commandments being written on the Ark of the Co- being written on the, the tablets of stone placed in the Ark of the Covenant. So that's a symbol for you of the Old Covenant. And the New Covenant talks about tablets of flesh, tablets of the heart. That's about the internal, subjective understanding of the individual, the belief that comes in the individual, the work of the Spirit to write on your individual heart. Whereas the tablets of stone are external forms. They're objective. They're outside of you. You look upon them. Page 3. Jeremiah 31, verses 13 to 30... Sorry, 31 to 34. 13 to 34 would be a bit longer. Uh, 31 to 34 is an important prophecy about the New Covenant. And talks about this idea of the writing on the inward man. Let's, let's read this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so there's a new covenant and an old covenant and there's some way that they're different. That's what I've gotten so far. You get that so far? Okay, we're on the same page. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Okay, so the list of things here is supposed to be different than the stuff in the old covenant. Okay, so let's, let's see what these things are. We'll see how they're different. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts, or their inward parts. Okay, so how is that different from the old covenant? Well, the Old Covenant, you had the giving of the law on the stones. But let me ask you this. Did anybody, like anybody, even one, did anybody in the Old Covenant understand and believe the law? Was it written on the hearts of even any one of them? Like maybe even Moses? Did any of them understand and believe the law? Okay, so if that's the case, I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts is not a total disjunctive. 
It's not like nobody in the Old Covenant got the law written on their heart. Only people in the New Covenant get it. But this is not what is being said here. Because some people in the Old Covenant understood and believed the law. Did anybody, even one person, anybody, understand and believe the Gospel in the Old Covenant? Was anybody saved? Did Abraham go to heaven? Did Moses go to heaven? Right? So some people had the covenant of grace written on their hearts in the Old Covenant. So how is it different? It's different because there's going to be an increase in the depth of knowledge. You're going to know more. And there's going to be more people who believe it. So more people with more depth. And in addition to that, the teaching tools are going to be more effective at causing people to learn in the New Covenant. And we're going to see Paul explains this as he's going through 2 Corinthians. He's going to teach us that. This is, this is how Paul is interpreting this. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Was God the God of anybody in the Old Covenant? And was anybody in the Old Covenant the people of God? There's an intensification This is not total disjunctive. It's an intensification. Verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Alright, so first of all, any of you having to evangelize still? Any of you having to disciple anybody still? Maybe it's just me. So how? How can we say in the New Covenant, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. First of all, there's an increased teaching. The teaching is easier. It might not feel like it, but it is. If you were there before, you'd realize how much easier it is. I was there. So, that being the case, we have this, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. You know what that is? Don't tell anybody. Postmillennialism. That's a statement that someday, the new covenant is going to cause it so that there's no place else to go to evangelize. There are no more nations to disciple. Because they've all been discipled. That's what that's saying. There's no more sending out of missionaries because all that's left to do is to sheep steal. If you plant the church, all you're going to be doing is taking people out of another good church. So we're not going to do it anymore. We'll be done there, and when the population increases, okay, then you'll plant another church. That's the point that things will reach in the New Covenant. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Did God forgive the iniquity of anybody in the Old Covenant? David, like when he wrote Psalm 51. Anybody? Was anybody forgiven any iniquities? Yes. But the accomplishment of the payment of the debt occurs with the New Covenant. The bringing in of the New Covenant. And so the forgiveness of iniquity and the non-remembering of sin, this all occurs in a way where Christ accomplishes it. And so there is already forgiveness. There's already the forgiving of iniquity. There's already the putting away of sin. But this is accomplished in a way where the work is done. And new sins will obviously be committed in the new covenant, but there will be forgiveness that has already been paid for. So this is what Jeremiah is talking about. The New Covenant and the Old Covenant are not a disjunctive where there's different covenants. It's one covenant of grace with a change of outward forms. And so the change of outward forms. And then there's effectiveness. Those outward forms come with power gifting. The effect of causing deeper knowledge. The effect of causing more people to be converted. They are more useful outward forms. These are the things we have. So we have a better priesthood 
being the priesthood of Melchizedek with better ministry, better service. Verse 4, page 3, we're at 2 Corinthians. No, we're chapter 4. No, what are we doing? I don't know what I'm doing. All right. I'm on page 3. We're at verse 4. I better speed up. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay. We have trust what? We have such trust through Christ toward God. We have trust that the work that we've done is effectual in giving you guys salvation, in giving you gifts of the Spirit, in giving you knowledge of God. That's what Paul is saying. Why? Not because he thinks, verse 5, that he's sufficient in himself, or that anybody he's ministering with is sufficient in himself, but he believes that sufficiency is in God. He believes the Holy Spirit is efficient, is powerful, is effective to cause people to be saved, and to be sanctified, and to have gifts of the Spirit, and to bear tons of fruit. Verse 6, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. So he also then provides gospel officers and ordinances for the church. And not just so that the letter can be used, not just the preaching of the text, not just the reading of the text, but the Holy Spirit powerfully uses the reading and preaching and singing of the word of God to cause growth in the inward man, renewal, sanctification, The letter kills. Without the Holy Spirit, all the letter does is increase your condemnation. The outward forms, without any work of the Holy Spirit to convert, only kills. The preaching of the law, the preaching of the gospel, they increase your responsibility so that you would have a worse hell unless the Holy Spirit causes you to understand it and believe. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Page 4, verse 7. But if the ministry of death... Now, ministry of death is now a name for the Old Covenant. Like Paul is just like keeping up names here. He's like, here's like 45 names for the New Covenant. Have fun keeping up. And here's like 6 for the Old Covenant. Have fun keeping up. It's pretty easy to sort out though. The good ones are the New Covenant. The bad ones are the Old. So, you know, just there's the key for you. So, the ministry of death. Good, bad. Which one? Okay, yeah, Old Covenant. Right. You're sticking with me. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones, stones inferior to flesh, okay, stones, old covenant. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, death, written on stones, doesn't seem glorious. The ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance which glory was passing away, passing away as opposed to permanent, Old Covenant, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Okay, so he's saying the letter, the ink, the ministry of death, the written, engraved on stones, he's saying all that, it's passing away, and it's glorious. The Old Covenant, the covenant of grace in the Old Testament was glorious. But it has all these names, not because it wasn't a saving covenant. Not because it was a covenant that didn't have the gospel. Not because it was a covenant that failed to give anybody life. But because in contrast, in contrast to the new covenant, it is like a murdering machine. The new covenant is going to give so much more life than the old covenant. That the old covenant which brought life looks like a death machine in comparison. Do you understand how much life is going to be given out in the New Covenant? So much so that the only saving message available to man until the coming of Christ, the only forms available, the killing of bulls and goats and doves, that 
system, that ceremony set, those signs which were used for bringing life, that they are nothing in comparison to the life that is going to be given in the new covenant. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, condemnation, but the law, the preaching of the gospel and of the teaching of the law in the old covenant, most of the people who heard it overwhelmingly did not believe and it brought increased judgment onto them. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So in the new covenant, it gives we have way more glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. Oh, how is that? Because of the glory that excels. And so the new covenant is so much more glorious that the old covenant, which was glorious, seems inglorious. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Modern evangelicals read this and they think, oh yeah, the Old Testament was bad. No. What this is saying is the Old Testament is amazing. It's glorious. It's above and beyond what men can think or do. It requires revelation for us to get it. And the New Covenant is so much more glorious that it causes that glory to seem as no glory. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such hope. What hope? The hope that the new covenant is going to convert people and order things and bear fruit and cause people to be sanctified. Since we have such hope that the fragrance of Christ will be dispersed throughout the earth. Because we have such hope that this epistle is written by the ministry of the new covenant as people are made into believers and caused to do good works that that is an epistle that writes out a message to the world. Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Do you see how, if you think you just walk around winning, and you just go, if I open my mouth, and I say what the Bible says, I'm going to win. Would that encourage you to open your mouth and say what the Bible says? To do it boldly, and to just go, well, it's fine, you might be offended here, but the Word of God says, bam. Both barrels. Blamo. The Word of God says this. Deal with it. So we're all afraid... And we want to look at it for the right time, right thing, whatever. Look, the Word of God is the Word of God. It is powerful. It's living. It's active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts things. It's a sword. It's not a play knife. It's not a rubber training knife. It's a sword. It's so sharp that it like cuts things that we don't think we can cut. We're supposed to use it boldly. The Psalms are a two-edged sword in our hands. When we sing the praises of God, it is a weapon of war. The Psalms are offensive, which is why most churches don't sing them. The Psalms are a ham-handed, everybody saying it at the same time, laying out of the Word of God. If you you think my preaching is ham-handed, the Psalms are ham-handed. Read the last verse of 137. Why did God do that? Why did God make it hard for people to hear it without becoming upset? Because He wants to glory in the fact that by the foolishness of preaching, by the foolishness of the Word of God, that the world in all its wisdom is caused to bow. We are the fragrance of Christ. So we take the Word... We use the Word. We are bold in speaking the Word. We use great boldness of speech. Verse 13. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Look, so God's speaking from the mountain, right? Israel goes, this is hard. Moses, could you just let us not have to deal with God speaking? Because that would be amazing. Could you just go talk to God and then you tell us in your pity, pitily human voice what God said and we'll hear you. He comes down and he's shining out glory because he's been hanging out with God. And they go, Moses, 
do us a favor? Could you tone down the radiating of glory that you're doing, please? So that when you tell us what God told you with His scary God voice and caused you to shine out reflecting glory, could you please pull that back? Could you like reduce that down a little bit? Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. Okay, This is the Old Covenant. It's passing away. When did it pass away, everybody? Is it still going on? Is the Old Covenant still happening? I mean, we're like 2,000 years into the New Covenant. Do we still have the Old Covenant? It passed away at some point. It passed away in 70 AD when the temple, which is the big sign of the covenant, was destroyed. God made it very easy for us. It was like, here's a gigantic city with a gigantic temple, and it's white and glimmering, and I'm going to destroy it for you. There's prophecy about it. He made it easy for us to know when it passed away. Verse 14, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. So in these Old Covenant churches that had not accepted Christ, Paul was still trying to get people to see. He's going around, you know, splitting synagogues, going from city to city, preaching in synagogues. He didn't try to accept Christ, accept the new covenant. And he's saying, these guys aren't seeing it. And when they don't see it, and, God, and, and, and Paul splits the church, some of them become a part of the new covenant church, and the other ones become a synagogue of Satan. Every synagogue on the planet now 2,000 years into this thing is a synagogue of Satan. They've rejected Christ. And we're not even just in this like veiled thing. This is a, there is a rejection. This is not the Old Covenant. Synagogues are not Old Covenant churches. Synagogues now are synagogues of Satan. They have rejected Moses. If they believed Moses, they would believe Christ. This was a transitional period. Verse 15. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So on the subjective level, the removal of the veil. So we have the veil with Moses' face, and then there's the veil or curtain that separates the Holy of Holies in the temple, and then there's this subjective individual veil. Christ came, He died, the veil was torn in the temple. The veil is removed in terms of Moses because we have the New Covenant, the New Testament, which helps us to understand the Old Testament. And many people who were converted, who accepted Christ as the Messiah, they have the personal veil removed so they can see. Now that internal work, okay, this removing of blindness, removing of darkness, the giving of light, the giving of sight, the removing of the veil, these are all ways of talking about the new birth, conversion, regeneration, effectual calling, bringing about faith in an individual. This is what Augustine would have called illumination. The idea of the work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to see, to believe. Verse 16. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Okay? This is saying, in other words, we're talking about the third person of the Trinity. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When one turns to the Spirit. Now, he's been talking about the Spirit. Normally, Lord, we think of Christ. Or we think of a generic name for God. But here he's saying, I'm very specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He says, the removal of this slavishness to sin... And that should remind you of when Christ says that the truth will set you free. And the response of the Jews was, what do you mean? We weren't born slaves. We're Jews. We're sons of Abraham. We've been born free. And Jesus tells them, no, they're not free. Now the, Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Or you could translate that, just as from the, Spirit, from the Lord, the Spirit. So the idea here is, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit and causes the Holy Spirit 
to transform us after the image of Jesus Christ. When we stare into the mirror of the Word of God, we are staring into the glory of the Lord. When we read the Word, we are taking in that glory. And we are, by the power of the Spirit, the letter is made effectual so that we are renewed after the image of Christ. And by degrees, more and more, we are brought to a more glorious state. From glory to glory. Page 5. Therefore, since we have this ministry, think about this ministry. What is this ministry? This ministry is the ministry of the New Testament, the ministry of the New Covenant. The last 25% of the Bible makes the whole Bible way more powerful. We have the 75% that's the Old Covenant, and this add-on package that God gave at the end, wait, there's more, makes the whole thing so much more powerful. And it removes a misunderstanding that would be obtained. Misunderstanding that is there. It allows understanding to be obtained in the Old Covenant far more easily, for by far more people, far more deeply. Therefore, since we have this ministry, the New Covenant ministry, as we have received mercy, we receive salvation and we receive gifts of grace, we do not lose heart. We are fighting Paul's fighting super apostles and the minority group of the church. These people in Corinth are dealing with a good chunk of the church rejecting church discipline. And they've got these guys that are claiming to be apostles that seem so fantastic, so impressive compared to Paul, who's not there. So Paul is saying, look, we have this ministry. We have this powerful ministry. And we are winning. And every step of the way we're winning. And we are spreading the fragrance of Christ. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Or you might say the Greek is similar to earlier on when it talked about adulterating the word of God for gain. Now it's, we're not handling the word of God or adulterating the word of God. So what is he saying He's saying this over and over again. Hey, we're not adulterating the Word of God. We're not adulterating the Word of God. Who's adulterating the Word of God? The super apostles. They are using the Word of God, twisting it to try to gain profit, to get followers, to get a crowd. American evangelicalism is absolutely characterized by that. I've said this to you before, and I say it to you again. I think one of the easiest metrics, if you could imagine, kind of a, a board that has main metrics to judge a church by. You'd see, if you had some way of counting this, how many true statements were taught to how many people per dollar? <coughs> if the church exists to spread the knowledge of the truth, <coughs> Efficiently spending money and time to spread the knowledge of the truth is what you would judge that church by. Now, we have means that are given to us by God. We have a way we're supposed to do it. And I want to suggest this to you. The way that Jesus Christ designed it is to maximize that key performance indicator. Which is why we sing psalms, read the word, preach the word, Pray scripture-oriented prayers. Do the sacraments that were appointed with explanation. These are the things that have been appointed. This is the new covenant. This is the simplicity of the New Testament worship. It is designed to teach. It is designed to open eyes. It is powerful to do so. We have renounced the hidden things of shame. There's not secret teachings and there's not wicked things that we're teaching that we're ashamed of putting forward. The same doctrine, the same ethical standard gets pounded publicly and privately. Not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully. Not adulterating the word of God. Not trying to tickle ears. But by manifestation of the truth, 
commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Men can glower and glare and be angry, but at the same time, the law of God is powerful to appeal to men's consciences, and the gospel answers the shouting of the conscience that you need a Savior. Verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, right, even if there's some external veil or an internal veil, it's veiled internally, not externally, to those who are perishing. And so what's the veil? The veil is not because we're preaching plainly with the simplicity of the New Testament. So where's the veil? The veil is on the inside of the people who don't believe. They don't want to see it. Verse 4, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Satan and his minions, the false, demonic, pretender gods, you might call them super gods, you've got super apostles and super gods, all pretending. Let's play pretend. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so, they're veiled. Satanic power is trying to blind them. And if God removes that blinding, they'll see. So, everyone who's blind, God wants them to be blind. That This message is death to the dying. And that's why everywhere we go, as long as we're saying God's words, we're winning because we're accomplishing the objective set out for us. The Word of God does not return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent every single time. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. The Gospel, you know who people don't need to hear about? You. You know who they do need to hear about? Jesus. And if they do hear about you, it needs to be how you have been made a slave of Jesus. Are you a slave of Jesus? Do you think to yourself, how can I, in every detail, subject myself to the will of my Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the way of happiness. And it is true liberty. I encourage you to seek as much as you can to identify yourself as a slave, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you tell people about Jesus, make sure you're talking about Jesus first and foremost. And not about you. Everybody wants to talk about experience. Your experience does not matter. The Lord Jesus Christ matters. And if your experience is the experience of being saved, then it matters in so far as it is actually the experience of being saved. And so sharing with people what the Lord has done for you as a way of pointing to Him is very different from pointing the people to you. So you need to know the Gospel. You need to know Jesus Christ. You need to talk to people about Jesus Christ. You tell them what He has done in history. And you can point to what He has done for you. But it's not about you. Your testimony should be about Jesus and you can talk about what He saved you from. But there's a big difference between talking about yourself and Jesus being sort of a side dish versus here's my testimony. Jesus Christ did this. Verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Because God, the God who made light, is also the God who caused light to shine in us individually. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is the truth of God. 
the earthen vessel is your body. It's you. The idea that your soul, your, your spirit is in your body, and your spirit possesses this treasure. It possesses this knowledge. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Right? So you, your experience, what you are, what power you have is a clay pot. The gospel that you believe is gold. Pass out the gold. We are hard pressed on every side. Yet not crushed. We will not be defeated. The church will be hard pressed. Our experience is going to, experience, going to be the experience of suffering. And that will glorify God as it encourages you to think and to glorify God with your thoughts. And you will not be defeated. You will be upheld. You will be victorious. We triumph everywhere we go as long as we proclaim the Word of God and diffuse the fragrance of Christ. We are perplexed. We don't know what to do. But I'll tell you what. God does, so we do not despair. We're perplexed. I don't know what to do. God does, and we're going to win. So just keep following your orders. Don't despair. We are persecuted. But you know what persecution does not mean? It does not mean that we have been forsaken by God. If you suffer, if other people oppose you, if people say you're wrong, say you're bad, say you're whatever, legalistic, whatever, persecuted not forsaken struck down but not destroyed we can be killed man can destroy the body but only God can destroy the soul we can be struck down but we will not be destroyed we are always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus we die to flesh, we die to the world, we die to Satan, we die as an old man, this crucifying of the flesh, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That's the positive. We put off sin, we put on good works, we bear good fruit, we put on. We carry around the dying to the old man, that we might carry around the life of the new man, the life of the Spirit, the church, the life of Christ. Verse 11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. And we, if we have spiritual life, we're going to have a dying of the old man. We're going to pour out our lives like a drink offering. And some drip is the last drop. For we who live are always delivered to the death death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We die to the old man so that the new man can be made manifest. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Paul is saying, Paul and his party, they are dying to themselves as they suffer here And in that suffering, they're seeking to encourage the life of doing good work and proclaiming the gospel and planting truth and laying up treasures in the hearts of these clay jars. Verse 13, page 6. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. Now, that same spirit of faith, I think, is you know, the Holy Spirit. So, capital S. Since we have the same Holy Spirit that gives faith, therefore we spoke. Why? Because we received the words that were written, and the Holy Spirit caused us to believe it, so the ink became something that wrote on the heart. And therefore, since we believed what was written, we spoke. I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, 
You should understand the Word of God. You should believe it, and you should speak it. You speak it boldly. Because every time you speak it, you win. Christ triumphs everywhere you go. You speak the Word, and He causes the fragrance of Christ to be scattered throughout the earth, and He leavens the lump. Speak boldly. We believe, therefore we speak. Knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. He will resurrect us and He will cause us to rule His side. And we are ruling now. And you are living now. You have a life in Christ and you have authority in Christ. And that authority is the new covenant. And you've been given those tools to scatter the fragrance of Christ. To see the world brought to subjection. And will present us with you. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. So we have each other as fellow workers. We have the saints who have gone before us. We have the martyrs that have died. We have the apostles that have done work to lay foundation. We have others who work with us and let us work together now and be presented together. And let us hear good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. Verse 15, For all things are for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. God does all this work, gives all this glory, gives all this new covenant, all these gifts, all this power of the Holy Spirit for our sakes so that we would be knowers of God that would be filled with treasure. So that we, clay jars filled with treasure, can have that treasure on display. That glory, which is the knowledge of God. As we disperse the fragrance of Christ, there is this dispersing of treasure to fill the earth with treasure. Therefore, verse 16, we do not lose heart. But the glory of God is going to abound. There's going to be thanksgiving. Men will give thanks throughout the earth. And so, let's speak the word boldly. And let's not lose heart. Let's have hope. Even though our outward man is perishing. Do you feel that? Do you feel the life being extinguished? Do you feel yourself being poured out? That your life does not go on forever? That your days have an end? Too little butter spread across too much bread. Do you feel that? Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Day by day. You cannot lose your faith. You cannot be defeated. You cannot be destroyed. Your faith is built up. Day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Temporary light affliction, far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. These are the contrasts. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. You look around, and what do you see in the world? You see a lot of mess. You know what? You, you know what's unseen? A world that is filled with obedient persons, honoring the Lord, singing psalms on every major corner, households that worship God together, walking down the street, hearing people singing psalms in the evening around dinner time because there's such a standard behavior of that like at Kidderminster when Richard Baxter was there. That's unseen. It's going to happen. So you work with the hope that the world will be full of the knowledge of God, knowing that it's going to happen. And it's going to result in your individual reward if you boldly proclaim and just go around winning whether people are converted or not. So speak boldly. Store up treasures in your heart here. Store up treasures in heaven for yourself. You will see the knowledge of God fill the earth and there are unseen things that will happen in generations yet unborn. For the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are everlasting or eternal. Your self-interest is aligned with the goal. 
the way for you to be happy, and the way for you to store up treasures, and the way for you to advance your station, to increase your honor, to increase your joy, is to treasure God in your heart, to proclaim his word boldly and spread the knowledge of him throughout the earth, and to know that you are on a victorious march with the saints and martyrs and our great king. Comments, questions, objections for the voting members, those with speaking rights.